Hello and welcome to the Right for Your Life podcast. I'm joined as ever by Donna Sorensen. Hello. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. Terrific. What should we talk about today? <laughs> oh, well, there's been lots of interesting little bits and bobs, hasn't there, recently? Yeah, we've got a couple of articles that we want to talk about, um, and then we're going to talk about Superman and Jesus and were English teachers right? That's kind of the headline news. We could do with yeah. the, could do with some bongs. <laughs> bongs. Bongs. No, not that. Not like that. Goodness sakes, no. Like a uh, you know bong. <laughs> talking about franchises and publishers. Bong. We're talking about Superman and Jesus and bong. I'm getting less enthusiastic the more I bong. It's a terrible idea. But I'll tell you what, it's really good that you explain what you were talking about. And we didn't just leave it hanging like that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, we're going to talk about this article that was published on uh, Forbes. So, forbes.com forward slash lots of letters. And it's called, Is 21-Year-Old Samantha Shannon the Next J.K. Rowling? 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 What do you say? Yeah. No, no which one do you say? J.K. Rowling or Rowling? Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I mean, there is a right answer. However, she says it, it's Rowling. Is it? Yeah, I thought so. I just had a bit of crisis of confidence halfway no, but you through. See, my... I could say anything and you just believe me. If, if you said, say it with enough conviction, I've got no idea. You don't know? No. J.K. Rowling, I think, is what okay. I've heard most. But we'll, we'll go with that. Everyone listening is going to know this, apart from us. I know. And we're the ones talking. So, is 21-year-old Samantha Shannon the next J.K. Rowling? So, the crux of this um, article is quite a long article. Um, but the crux of it is that, uh, I mean, actually, Samantha Shannon, who I'm sure is ace, and I'm, I'm, I, don't, I hadn't actually heard of her before, um, uh, she kind of starts off being part of the article, but it soon goes on to just publishing in general and how publishers are after these tentpole titles that make an absolute fortune and then prop up the rest of the industry, hence the tent, I think. I think that's the yep. metaphor. Um, and so people are pondering on whether Samantha Shannon, who's had a six-figure deal for her uh, for the Bone Season, which is the first instalment in her seven-part series about clairvoyance in a dystopian future, who struggle against a total, total, totalitarian government <laughs> and its supernatural overlords, nice. um, which is very similar to the books I write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so she's uh, she's being hailed as uh, potentially the next J.K. Rowling. But what they're really getting at is the idea that publishers they want books that are going to sell a fortune, are uh, going to make a fortune because they they're like they're series basically. So so yeah. not just one book, but a series of books. Just like in the film industry, eh? I mean, it's all they just want you know a series of of big blockbusters, anything that they can get a sequel out on. It's um, it's very interesting though. The figures on this article, I thought, I thought were astounding. Did you see? Did you read about the figures about, like, for example, where E.L. James and Suzanne Collins are, are basically they account for twenty five percent of the total number of copies sold in two thousand and twelve of the four hundred highest selling titles. Yes, they are twenty five percent. Just those two. Yes, and Fifty Shades is thirteen point four percent of those four hundred. Yeah, and Suzanne Collins. Then that's that's. I mean, for a for a young adult novel as well. I guess Fifty Shades um, is a children's book, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The writing style I've heard is, but um, I I haven't read it, so I'm not going to comment. No. Um, Yeah, and uh, yeah, 
And uh, but, I mean, but the important thing here is that Fifty Shades, it says here, um, and we won't just read out bits of the article for the entire podcast, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fifty Shades was uh, led to a 75% jump in profits for Random House. Yeah, and they all got bonuses. And not everyone got bonuses, which is, you know, I don't mind that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was very unusual. Very unusual for the publishing industry and a very small bonus, let's be honest. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, just incredible figures. You're absolutely right. And so you can kind of understand why the traditional publishing, publishing world kind of thinks, well, OK, if that's that's happened, then we need to try and do the same. And because that's kind of like it's sort of similar to what we've done for years. And mm. so we'll just we'll see if we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. It, Instead of sort of realising that those are just outliers, they're complete outliers, and um, and I don't know. This is a really difficult one, and it's difficult because there is truth in the argument that stuff like that, sales like that for one book, allows a publisher to spend less. Sorry, to 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 spend less, but also to take a risk on authors of, let's say slightly offbeat literary fiction like mine but the truth is when I was trying to get my novel sold I had I've said this before on the podcast lots of fantastic feedback from from the big publishers but ultimately they decided they couldn't take that risk now things may have changed now but it's actually publishers like Legend and like Salt and various others who are taking the risks and they're not looking for people like uh, E.L. James or Fifty Shades of Grey where there's this massive audience already established they're looking for they're looking to work with authors and do the best uh make make the best possible book they can and, and but i guess another thing is they're not they're not supporting you know hundreds of thousands of workforce well exactly that's how yes exactly but something which there was two, two things that i found really interesting about this which were um i mean i think it's very understandable that people just want to make lots and lots of money and they want a series but the first thing i noticed was that um this hasn't come through the slush pile, this, this book. Which one? Uh, the, the Bone Season. Yes. One which is being called the next the next J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Um, it was a literary agent. It was his intern. Yes. It's not what but, you know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's fascinating in itself, you know, because, I mean, there, there could be millions of other Bone Seasons out there, but um, they're, they're, they're kind of languishing in, in slush piles. Um, well, or... Maybe they are being picked up off the slush piles. I don't know. No, they're not. I mean, they're not. The fact that, uh, I mean, again, I'm saying this without having read the book, without knowing any of the people involved, but I I would imagine it's a relatively fair assumption to say that had she not been her, uh, um, an intern, uh, uh, was it the agent? Sorry, was it the literary agency or was it the publisher? Um, It was at the agent, I think. Okay. So she was, yeah. Yeah, her chances of getting her manuscript read were... um, infinitely better than anyone else's and you know i so fair play to her you know she she took on an unpaid position and got herself in the door and when i was working in ireland my first position was unpaid and it was just incredible the amount of people i met and the contacts i built up and then my my paid job after that really came through that and i know a lot of people are, are having to do that um in this day and age but it's um you know, I mean, it's 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 obvious that it works if people are able to to go and sign six figure book deals because agents are looking at their stuff before other people's. Yeah, I mean, I've got absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fair play. I'm not. I'm 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 doing my best not to be churlish, and 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 I'm not. I don't. I don't. 
you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely fine. Oh, no, it's but, not. Uh, I mean, I just mean that, you know, people, everyone should just quit their jobs and should just say, look, go batter down the doors of literary agents and publishers and just say, I'm happy to just work here forever for free. And then after, you know, like 20 years of unpaid work, you might sign a, a six-figure deal. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting is just thinking about the fact that regardless of how good the bone season is, it could be absolutely amazing and it could be not for me. But just to have an article where somebody has said, just the lines in it saying, oh my God, and I called them and I said, you've got to read this. This is the next big thing. This is the biggest thing in like 10 years. I mean, that, that just I just read that and I was like, oh my God, it just gets you, you know. It does. I mean, there's an example that I read about today. Um, Galley Beggar Press, but who is sort of run by Sam Jordison, who's a Guardian journalist, um, set up last year and uh, kind of an independent publisher doing um, e-books. They're kind of getting um, sort of, uh, books that may not be in print anymore, who and make it sort of turning them into e-books and and um, and trying to get them out to an audience again, but also publishing new fiction too. And and I read a piece. Uh, an interview with with um, with him today, and their latest um, novel. And I'm I'm blooming saying this without actually having it in front of me and remembering the name of the person who wrote this book, or the name of the book, which is I apologise for previously, but it will be in the show notes, so you should go and check it out. Um, but basically, Just make this a name up immediately on the spot. Sorry. Just make a name up, and will you? Do I it won't do because that's the, I won't make a name up because I feel like I've been grumpy enough already in this podcast, and that would be that would be a bad thing to do. Um, <laughs> but basically, the way that the, 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 they they found um, uh, the author was that she walked into um, the bookshop where the where the publishing um, where the publishing company is kind of based, and and kind of knew the book uh, knew the um, the guy who ran the bookshop and kind of presented her work and it was amazing and Sam Jordison described it today as one of the best books he's ever read and that has a much more of a kind of homemade feel to it which I think I actually think this is the way it's going to go self-publishing is one version of homemade but I also think publishing itself is going to become much more homemade uh, with the authors being more involved in in every aspect including selling it but yeah, but the author's been more involved, but I, I, but also the actual people who are publishing the books who are going to say, right, okay, I think this can be done differently. I think this is important. I'm not interested in Twilight or Harry Potter even, or Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm not interested in that way of doing things, of trying to find this magnificently amazing deal that funds everything else. I want to be sustainable and consistent and proud of everything that I publish and find alternative ways of doing it just like uh, Gallyberger Press and um, and Legend as well to a degree although they are it's a much more traditional way of doing things I guess on a smaller scale but it's still the idea of championing people that they that they sort of believe in and work that they care about absolutely um, same in New Island books who are publishing yeah. a poetry collection I mean you know if you're going to publish collections of poetry you, you realize that you know it's not going to be um it's not going to be selling millions of copies so yeah but we're, we're kind of right at the start of this stage it's this is we're people are only just starting to do this kind of thing in a few years time people will be more technologically aware they will be this might this may sound ridiculous but there will be i'm 32 and i'm relatively tech savvy but everything that i know I pretty much learnt in my, I guess, in my partly in my job, but actually mostly in my spare time. Whereas the people that are becoming into the publishing industry, 
now to, in their sort of early twenties and from now on, they're going to have been brought up on technology and all those kind of things. And people that are now in their teens who are interested in publishing and that kind of thing, hopefully, hopefully, if the government can get its act together, they're going to be taught how to code. And so they're going to know they're not going to you know, we're going to have not going to have the situation we have now where people see this the dreaded word e-revolution going on and just have no technological skills or technical skills sorry technical skills whatsoever and just think oh my god what do we do let's try and do what we do now but in a way that fits that they're going to actually have the 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 practical skills to to make stuff happen i was talking i'm, I'm going on a minor rant here but i was talking to <laughs> talking to um someone, yeah, I'm just <laughs> talking to someone at work recently and we hear lots of ideas at work and we get people who uh, suggest projects to work and that kind of thing. And lots of people want social networks. So I've got this fantastic idea for a social network. And so you kind of say to them, well, what, 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 what do you want to, what, what sort of, uh, who have you got working on it? What sort of skills do they have? And they go, well, it's just an idea really at the moment. And if you think about all the truly successful, and I mean genuinely truly successful, Twitter and Facebook um, and, and, and various others, even something like Last.fm or Tumblr or that kind of thing, um, the people that worked on that from the beginning, whether it was one person or two people or three people, there's always someone who is incredibly technical but also passionate. Mm. It's the idea that a, de- that, that, that a developer is kind of just a, just someone who builds something for you. It's just that's not right. The people who are really successful who have the idea and then they can build it. And that's what the people of the future will be in, uh, or the people of publishing people of the future will be. And, yeah. and, and Jackson that, all trades. Indeed, and they'll be able to have an idea and make it happen, and um, and I think we're on the we're we're right at the start of this, and 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 that's what will happen eventually. But we're right at the beginning, and you know people are floundering, but there are people doing good stuff, which is kind of my point. Okay, sorry about that. You go. That's all right. No, no. I mean it's great because I think you've just basically summed up. And from what you've said, I've I've um, understood two things. The first is that Forbes shouldn't worry nobody should worry because it's not all about franchises and the second thing is i just had a revelation that our entire generation is going to keep getting some strain are we still talking about the same thing yes but hang on you have to bear with me here like you know the younger generations that are involved with technology and using their hands in a different way from much younger age yes they're gonna they're gonna develop in different ways. I keep getting thumb straight and I've suddenly realised that I think it's because I'm coming at all of this much later. So you're saying that they, they will have evolved in the space of around sort of 10 years, the human species, to kind of handle thumb use better? I think it's actually a scientific fact, I've just decided. Wow, no, we have... This has, es- <laughs> this has escalated quickly. <laughs> no, but I think it's really, really good that, um, that, that you were positive about it because, well, I guess both of us, are, you know, are are being published or have been published with with smaller presses which means that we we have only good things to think about the whole industry well optimism is kind of built in yeah it has to be (laughs) optimism and dodgy thumbs optimism and dodgy thumbs yeah there's the title of the podcast okay okay yeah that was fun next (laughs) that's sorted (laughs) down with franchises no worries yeah well yeah Uh, off we go right what we got next um, I think, well, I, I had said to you that I had this interesting tweet exchange. Mm, tell us. Um, where somebody, yeah, just Superman obviously is, is out and about at the moment, flying around. Um, and I just, I was sitting there and I just suddenly thought, 
my God, he's totally Jesus. Like in terms of the structure of the whole story, it was like, it was, it's just like a modern retelling. This was my, how my mind was working. It's just like a modern retelling of Jesus. And, uh, and so I tweeted that. And I was very, you know, chuffed with myself. And then somebody tweeted back um, that they thought actually it was probably just more general Messiah um, based on the fact that the creators of Superman were in fact Jewish. And I was like, oh, silly me. Yeah, of course, absolutely, you're right. And then I was thinking about it a little bit more. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. Just, I guess, I, I just assume that just because of their beliefs, the people that created this comic, you know, did it then necessarily mean that 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 influenced what they were writing so much that it had to be drawn from their religious beliefs. In other words, I was thinking could it could be something something entirely different, something separate and not related to anything. You know, maybe it wasn't even some kind of messiah. They just hadn't even thought about it. But I don't know. I think that how much your beliefs affect your writing is quite interesting, actually. It is, and we had a heated discussion about this a few weeks ago at. Um your mother's house and your father's <laughs> house. Oh, cool, yeah. Don't remind me. It got heated, didn't it? It always gets heated. Like a like a burger on a barbecue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we did, absolutely, because, you, I don't know, I, I, I personally, I'm a, an atheist, and I would like to think that we're, could imagine things outside my own beliefs, but then maybe I maybe I can't. I mean, I don't think I would I would write poetry about God. Come to think of it, I wouldn't. But then people who who do strongly believe in God doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to show in their writing, does it? Well, no, it doesn't. And uh, religion was um, uh, uh, was a theme in my novel. Um, is a theme in in my novel, but it's about it was about. Um, faith and illness really it's about how do you keep faith when kind of everything is really rubbish for you basically and yeah. and and for my character and um i'm not religious um I'm, I'm not i'm like you i'm an atheist but i have a, a one side of my family was very religious and um and, and and still is although there are not many of them about anymore but there is i i was kind of brought up in with 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 some of that in my life and i can never kind of make the two things match i could never quite understand how how um so my my some of my family did go to church all the time others didn't and i could never understand how they could still believe in the same thing if they behaved in a different way almost so there was an element of that that i wanted to bring into my writing but it wasn't what i was thinking and this comes down to this comes partly down to what I said at the start was, um, were English teachers right? So when you when you take your English class or English literature course and you read, um, in fact, I remember reading the, the poetry of um, um, uh, Elizabeth Jennings, I think it was, and my English teacher just reading so much into every single sentence because they had to, because we had to be, we had to analyse the poem and then we had to sort of be marked on it and kind of assessed on it. So... We had to read everything into everything, and I remember thinking at the time, "Come on, she wasn't thinking that." There was that that pansy does not represent her virginity. How, <laughs> how can it possibly? Of course, yeah. that would be a lily, wouldn't it? If, I don't know. I don't know what virginity is 
Uh, virginity, that's a new way of saying it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what her virginity was uh, uh, being represented by. I don't think it's being represented by anything. I think it was just a nice line in the story. You're really, yeah, you're kind of stuck there around about her virginity. I've, talked about, I've said it a few times, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, you have. It's like you're, you're thinking to yourself, don't say virginity again, and then you're saying it again. Yeah. I think I fell down when I um, said it the wrong way and then I thought I had to correct myself and then I didn't correct myself and then I thought, well, I better tell people that I'm aware of what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you were, yeah. So you, you didn't think that she had been so deeply or layering her poetry as deeply as the English teacher would like you to think? No, because, because we, as you said at the, at the start, it's kind of what is, how much of the, author, how much of the author's life or what they believe is, is in the work. And yeah. we read so much into it inevitably that um, that we can kind of get lost in, in all of that and kind of miss the fact that we're what we're reading is you know essentially a good story or a good yarn. Yeah, and, and um, it's difficult when when the author or the poet is not around anymore to defend what's been said about them. And you know, in this day and age, things just get get uh, get put up online so quickly without being verified, and people just take them as without meaning to talk about religion again, take them as gospel. Yeah. And um and it just and it sends this this kind of set of things in motion which make things fact even though they're not necessarily fact. I think it's quite scary actually. I do. It is slightly terrifying. It is slightly terrifying how much how quickly how how quickly sort of we jump to conclusions as a human race. Absolutely. Did you hear about what happened? Um, they found out recently in America, it was a school librarian discovered that um, a William Blake poem, which was on the curriculum of a lot of, um, I'm not sure which parts of America, but it was certainly on different uh, school syllabuses, um, turned out to have been written by a, a, a poet called Nancy Willard, not that long ago. And it took a school librarian to actually just say, oh, hang on a minute, I thought I, that's the, her style, or the style of that poem is, doesn't seem like Blake's. It seems more like, you know, this book that I once read. And to trace it back, and it becomes so ingrained in, in everybody's consciousness as being Blake that, that there was actual questions about what was, you know, how did this relate to this aspect of Blake's life, and blah, blah, blah. And it's, uh, it's unbelievable. And you think, how much has this happened, you know, in, in, other, in other works? It's, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've, again, I, without wanting to constantly refer to myself, on the on the opposite side of all of this, we do. Sometimes it's true. <laughs> I guess is I guess is what you know. Sometimes authors do intentionally put lots of hidden clues and personal yeah, things in there. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 all of my. Uh, all of the cakes that Gordon bakes in A's for Angelica, th- those p- specific cakes are relate to a specific point in his kind of um, his story. They you know they mean something. Now, generally, you might not even notice that if you're reading it, but if you sort of analyse it like you do in an English class, then you might, I suppose. So I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you don't, you're supposed to put your own beliefs and your own meaning in things. I, su- I suppose that is that is it. But I, I I do think maybe sometimes we just read way too much into stuff at the same time. We do, and also, like, when I was putting together my poetry collection, you know, you have this, this. Um, I'm sure other people that write poetry might have had this as well, a, a real, it's a conundrum, actually. How much do you spell out, for example, with the title of what you're writing, how much do you actually say about what, what the subject is if you've not specifically said it in the poem? Um, when you um, dedicate it to someone, 
you know, an epigraph, all these kind of things. And I've read in some poetry collections, they have, you know, like notes at the back that tell you that this, uh, something was referring to a different text or a painting or something like that. And when I was putting it together, that was actually the biggest um, stress for me was how much, like, should I actually be saying this? You know, telling people what this means and what these, these layerings are. Or should I just say, oh, it doesn't matter. If people read their own meaning into it, well, of course, that's great. But at any point, you know, I, I, are people going to completely miss what I wanted to say? Which is another thing that might happen. Yeah, it, uh, yes, and and the, the whole kind of, I mean, that's just part of the editing process as well, isn't it? The whole thing of of what to keep in and what to leave out. How much to tell, how much to show, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, it, it, you know, with, with the things that you said, like that Gordon's cakes had meaning. Hmm. Who who else apart from you would know that? Do you think that the readers would have would have understood that there was an association between what was happening and I won't give away what's happening? <laughs> well, um, there is one of them that's more obvious than others, I suppose. But um, does it matter to you if people would never have put two and two together to to um, to see that you you've done something specific there as a kind of underlying meaning? No, not in the slightest. I, I, I would much rather people just read it and enjoy the story and. And get into the book for, for 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 what it is than trying to analyse and read everything into it. Having said that, if it does get selected for a GCSE <laughs> uh, syllabus, then um, then that's fine by me. Then we'll just burn this podcast and pretend you never said it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. No. I I think it's um, someone like Seamus Heaney, as we talked about last week. Famous Seamus. Famous Seamus. He gets. He. I mean, he must get analysed left, right, and centre. And he's he's here, and he's not going to sit there and. and go through everything he was meaning with all his, you know, 100,000 poems he's written. Um, but I, yeah, I, to be honest, it would be a luxury to have my work misinterpreted. <laughs> so I've got to that stage where people are interpreting it in the first place. Well, I guess so. And that's, yes, it, you, to, be, to be read is, um, is the ultimate kind of uh, joy, isn't it? Who cares what people say or think as long as they're reading it? Well, yeah, um, yeah. Not, I, I didn't mean that. Does that did that sound disparaging? It wasn't supposed to. No, no. I just wonder whether I should agree with you or whether I should say actually I'd much prefer it if people liked what I wrote. What I <laughs> right. Okay. Which is actually what I was thinking in my head. And I well, no, said. I didn't. I didn't mean I don't want people. To, I don't think it matters whether people like it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they analyze it and find understand. all the hidden. Easter it doesn't matter if they understand it the way that you have p- intended it. Yes. Quite okay. Well, as I, as I, I said to you, I um, before. We started recording. I my someone emailed me and and said that they thought that they that my novel was a socialist comment on Thatcher's Britain, and I thought, oh well, is it? I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. But I could see. But once they said that, and I thought, well, actually, I suppose I can see what they thought. And some of those themes, I guess, are kind of in there. And what happens, I guess, suppose, and my think, my personal thinking, and where I come from, and all that kind of thing. Probably, yeah, I can see why you think that. But could it have been subconsciously put into the text? Well, no, maybe, maybe a little, but not, not explicitly. Not, not in a way where I would have expected someone to go, well, this is about, this is a socialist comment on Thatcher's Britain, if ever I've read one. Um, <laughs> definitely not to that point. I mean, you know, the no. fact that it's about a mining town. I'm talking about my book again, let's leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a right jerk. No, but that's, um, yeah, so we've said that we, 
it's very difficult, all this thing about interpretation, but ultimately it shouldn't matter too much. But I do worry that, you know, things, the mistakes are made online and things become fact without them actually being fact. I think that's, that's a real problem that our generation and gen- future generations are going to have to face. You know, people don't bother to actually go and find out whether something that they've read is, is correct or not. Because, you know, it's, it's much easier just to take everything at, at face value. Well, everyone wants to be first. First to leave a comment, first to report the news, first to... First to share it, I think, is the biggie. Yeah, and, um, and, it, and, and people don't check facts perhaps as well as they uh, should or used to. Mm, indeed. But it's not all bad, is it? No. <laughs> the internet's good. It's not all bad. By my clock, we are about half an hour into this uh, shenanigans. Um, these shenanigans. Shenanigans is a plural. Does that mean you can have a shenanigan? I don't know. It sounds like a, a raucous party <coughs> with Irish people dancing on the tables. So if you go to one party, you've had a. Sh- if you have one party, you've had a shenanigan. If you have multiple, you've had shenanigans. Yes. That can't be right. No, of course it's not. <laughs> but it sounds great. I would have believed it if someone had put it on the internet. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Which I just have. Um, so, um, you're going on holiday? <laughs> I am. Not long, not long become permanent here and off you go? I know, sorry, but uh, it's affected me so much I have to go to the exact opposite side of the world. <laughs> it's, it's very exciting, yeah. I am going to Australia. And, I, do, you, do you know, you don't know this, but that's something really exciting about where I'm going. Okay. Um, I've just found out that I'm... Um, going to stay in a house which is next door to the house which Baz Luhrmann used as Gatsby's house in the film, The Great Gatsby, which means that I am basically like Nick. I was going to say, does that mean that you are... Um, what's his surname? Nick Kaka... Kaka... Nick Ka. <laughs> Nick, hang on. Just fill the time while I type. <laughs> his, name, his first name's Nick. And I read Caraway. it. Caraway. Yeah, I got it oh, without even so checking. Close. I was so close. Um, um, so you're, you're going to be next door to Gatsby? Gatsby's that, the house that they used for it. And I literally am, if there's a swimming pool, or I don't know whether that was computer generated or put in afterwards, but if there is one, then I am going to run over and jump in it. Do not do that if it was computer generated. You will cause yourself a massive injury. <laughs> I know. And there's probably some kind of little animal in there that wants to eat me anyway, because apparently there's, that's what Australia's like. <laughs> it's just going to be three weeks of trying not to get eaten by very small animals better that than the big ones <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway I thought that's really exciting that is exciting I just wanted to go to one of Gatsby's parties so you know this is my chance absolutely well have a wonderful time and come back in what two weeks time I think yeah cool thank you very much and um, and um, and if, if you were to tweet while you're on holiday where would people um, find those tweets Don underscore S underscore Sorensen with an E. Yeah, S-O-R-E-N-S-E-N. And um, if you would like to find me, you can do so at uh, on Twitter at Ian Broom, I-A-I-N-B-O-M-E, or ianbroom.com. Um, or you can find my other podcast at verymeta.net or on SoundCloud if you search for Very Meta. And um, that's it. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And um, I will have a good holiday. Thank you. And uh, speak to you soon. See you, bye.